Members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints got us wondering about the practice of excommunication and related practices of shunning and ostracizing. You could add shaming, exile. And uh, we were wondering about excommunication. Does it have different meanings across various religions and cultures, and indeed in the secular world? Why are some individuals cut off and others not? How should religious institutions respond to unorthodox opinions and beliefs and behaviors among their members? Today on the program, we consider these questions within the context of Catholicism, Mormonism, the FLDS experience, and the Amish and Mennonite cultures. Our guests include USU Professor of Religious Studies and History Philip Barlow, who joins us by telephone. Professor Barlow, welcome to the program. Thanks very much, Tom. Appreciate you being with us. Uh, you're, you're a little faint. Can we get you... Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll adjust that as we go along. Uh, we have with us uh, in studio Harrison Kleiner, who is USU Lecturer of Philosophy. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. And uh, Donald Craybill, Distinguished College Professor and Senior Fellow at the Young Center for Anabaptist and Pietist Studies at Elizabethtown College, joins us by telephone. Now, welcome to the program. My pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Let me start with uh, Philip Barlow. Um, I'm, I'm wondering... We had a big discussion here at the uh, among staff members here at the station uh, uh, after the recent excommunications in the LDS Church, and uh, there seemed to be a lot of different, uh, full range of views about what excommunication is and how it's experienced among you know people of different uh, religious backgrounds here. And I'm I'm guessing there's a full range of how 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 it's viewed out there. Yes, the uh, recent events uh, with Kate Kelly and John DeLynn naturally. Uh, provoked a good bit of discussion within Latter-day Saints or former Latter-day Saints. Uh, so I wonder, um, from, from the point of view of the LDS Church, what, uh, what's the view, do you think, among, I guess, just the, the average member of the Church on, on what excommunication is? Well, um, unlike um, some groups, um, some forms of the fundamentalist Latter-day Saints, or we'll learn from Professor Craybill more about uh, Amish and Mennonite traditions, <clears throat> but um, the average member, uh, it's a church of millions, so average is a pretty tricky um, concept. They range a good bit. Average, typical Latter-day Saints might view things quite differently than another typical Latter-day Saint. But in general, the idea is that uh, the Church, like any organization, secular or religious, has the right and even responsibility to um, define membership uh, within the community, and uh, that excommunication, um, even though the criteria has evolved over time and space and circumstance, the general idea is that there's such a thing as a boundary that is not acceptable to the community or the authorities of the community, and when that endangers um, the church or in the church's perception endangers um, the church member, then some sort of discipline in the community and and with that individual member needs to be maintained. So it would be true as, of me as a citizen of the United States or a faculty member, even with tenure at a university, that that there are such things as, as um, bounds of unacceptable behavior. Mm. 
this is, and you you mentioned, you know, citizens. So you could be exiled. You could, you know, there's there's uh, shaming, shunning that we'll talk about. Yeah. But excommunication, I don't know. It, it seems to come with, at least to some people, I don't know, black edges around the word. It's uh, there. There's a connotation that not only be <coughs> kicked out of the organization, but a, you know, uh, consequences beyond beyond this life, heaven and hell. Yeah, um, but that's a complex conversation, and uh, many church members wouldn't necessarily take it that far. But there is talk out there among critics of the church, whether within its ranks or without, that excommunication is um, an antiquated practice, uh, antiquated way of thinking, medieval in its concept, and uh, punitive and uh, vengeful even as opposed to being charitable and loving. And of course, it can take that form when things go awry. But the policy of the uh, mainstream LDS Church um, understands it officially as um, a necessary act, actually, even of love, although that can um, seem ironic. But Discipline, for instance, comes from the same root that disciple does. There has to be Mm -hmm. some definition to the body politic or the body of the church. And so there needs to be some some mechanism, whatever we call it, to maintain identity and maintain boundary of, of good behavior and unacceptable behavior. So it wouldn't necessarily uh the mainstream church uh, tries hard not to think of it as a vindictive um, or medieval process i do have an email that uh, relates here i'll bring this in i want to bring in uh, professor craybill uh, first uh, uh, tell me about uh, shunning in the, in the amish and mennonite uh, traditions well tom uh it's a, it's a complicated question because um there are 60 different uh mennonite church groups across the United States and 40 different Amish church groups, or what I call sometimes Amish tribes. And uh, for the Mennonites, um, 75% of those or higher uh, would not practice any uh, formal type of excommunication uh, and certainly not any shunning. Um, The more traditional Mennonites uh, would uh, continue to practice both excommunication and shunning. And notice I'm making, at least in the Amish and Mennonite world, a sharp distinction between excommunication and shunning. Excommunication is when you lose your church membership because of some deviant behavior, and shunning refers to how the uh, existing members relate to or treat or think about or act toward uh, those who were expelled through um, excommunication. Um, most of the Amish groups would continue to practice excommunication and some type of um, some type of shunning. Um, the The roots of uh, the Amish and Mennonite uh, view of this go back to um, what they call the Dortrecht Confession, that was comes out of the Netherlands in 1632, but. Uh, Amish and Mennonites didn't invent shunning. Um, uh, This is an older practice that goes back to the early church. Um, The the rules of St. Benedictine, for example, are very similar in some ways to how the Amish practice uh, shunning. 
Um, I view uh, these, particularly in the Amish context, as group rights, or I-T-E-S, group rights of shaming. It's, it's an attempt to bring back to the church uh, someone who has uh, violated significant regulations of the church. And for Amish and Mennonites, this is directly tied to their baptismal vow. Uh, Amish and Mennonites believe in adult baptism, so their members decide as teenagers or early young adults that uh, they want to uh, join the church and are baptized. And that's not only a, a commitment of Christian faith, but in the Amish context, it's a promise, a vow made that they make to God and the other members that they will uphold the teachings of the church for the rest of their life. And so they would be excommunicated at some later point if they uh, violated a teaching of the church, such if they're Amish, if they go out and buy a car. Now, often there's a gradual negotiation process, and the individual might say, well, I'm very sorry I did this. It was so stupid. I should have never bought a car. Uh, then uh, they make that confession to the Amish church, and they're restored back into membership. So there's always a, a back door back into the church upon uh, a confession of their error. But if uh, they never make that confession, then they would be um, uh, remain excommunicated and subject to the guidelines for shunning for the rest of their life. Uh, how would, how's, the, how's the shunning manifest itself? You just don't associate with that member? Right. Uh, uh, no, no uh, there's no restrictions against speaking to the person or talking to the person. In fact, if someone that's excommunicated, if their barn burns down or they have a tragedy, uh, the members are urged uh, to help them and, and support them. But it's more uh, uh, public shaming, like not eating together at the same table. And so, again, the, the, these are shaming things, not shaking their hand, for example, in a greeting, or not uh, accepting um, a gift from them, or not riding in the car of an ex-member in, in the context of, of the Amish. So they, they are ways of what I would call social rights of shaming to kind of embarrass the ex-member and remind them that they have broken their vow that they made on their knees at baptism to God. So um, in some cases, um, ex-members do come back and the shining is lift, lifted. In other cases, uh, ex-members get very bitter, very angry, and uh, basically, uh, you know, have nothing to do with the church. Let me turn to Harrison Kleiner. You made an interesting point when we were talking before we went on the air. I hadn't even thought of this, um, that shaming, shunning happens in the secular world. It's happening right now. Yeah, I, I do think that um, the state of Indiana, um, after this Religious Freedom um, Act, is being shamed, right? They're uh, um, in a secular context, right? big, big, big businesses like Apple are um, – publicly condemning the law. Um, other states, Connecticut is, I think it's Connecticut, was refusing to pay for uh, state employees to travel to Indiana. Um, and yeah, these these look to me like kind of shunning, practices of shunning and shaming that are designed to change the behavior, right? Change, get them to rescind the law or modify the law or whatever it might be. Uh, and I heard that, uh, was it the, the mayor of San Francisco? Has has banned public funds for travel to to Indiana. That you know fits in here. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Um, uh, and this happens, I think, quite a lot, right? I mean, uh, uh, the 
I think he was a CFO of, of Mozilla Firefox. It turned out he had donated private monies to Proposition 8. This became public, and he was ousted, right? And there was kind of a, a big social media campaign um, talking about how he wasn't welcome at, at the business. Um, in the end, I think he resigned, but it was a sort of forced resignation. So, so yeah, there's within the sort of broader political and moral sphere, uh, lots of different kinds of social and political shunnings that and shamings that go on to try to change other people's behavior. And I, I suspect the point of view is, is, is the one that was just ex- expressed by Dr. Crable, that an attempt to sort of embarrass or shame them into sort of con- uh, turning away from uh, uh, an unaccept- what is deemed to be an unacceptable behavior or policy and towards something else. We're talking about excommunication, uh, shunning, ostracizing on the program today. This is in response, of course, to the uh, high-profile excommunications recently in the LDS Church. We're going to take a break. When we come back, more with Philip Barlow, who is a professor of religious studies at Utah State University, Harrison Kleiner, a lecturer of philosophy at USU, and Donald Crabill, who is a professor of uh, sociology and religious studies at Elizabethtown College. Uh, we uh, will accept your phone call and uh, and email at uh, 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or upraxcess at gmail.com, and we're on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. Uh, we have an email from a listener in uh, Pennsylvania up next following the break. If you're an enterprising business, you do what you got to do, right? Like this. Well, I think in our case, we enter the market and create a market so that we we have a voice in the market. I'm Kai Rizdal, Patagonia, the outdoor clothing company and profitable sustainability next time on Marketplace from APM. Thursday night at 7 on Utah Public Radio. Our listeners are company presidents, board members, partners, and other top executives. Your company can talk directly to these decision makers with program sponsorship. For more information, call Terry Guy at 435-797-3215. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and USU Athletics announcing the 2015 Mountain West football schedules. Six home games, including Boise State, BYU, and Colorado State. Aggie football ticket information available at the USU Athletics ticket office and one state one Thanks for listening to Access Utah. Recent uh, highly publicized excommunications of prominent members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints got us wondering about the practice of excommunication and related practices of shunning and ostracizing. Now, this is manifest, of course, in the religious world, also in the secular world, as we've brought up. Does excommunication have different meanings across various religions and cultures? And why are some individuals cut off and others not? We'll uh, talk about that in this segment. Uh, How should religious institutions respond to unorthodox opinions, beliefs, and behaviors among their members? We're talking with uh, Philip Barlow and Harrison Kleiner from Utah State University and Donald Craybill from Elizabethtown College. You can join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Or by email to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. We're on Twitter as well, at Utah Public Radio. 
So I'll direct this uh, this uh, comment and question that we received by email first to Professor uh, Barlow. Uh, this is a listener from Pennsylvania who says, uh, regarding your program today, I'd like to know when and why the LDS Church went from excommunication as punishment to excommunication as loving do-over. Uh, and uh, then they quote from a 1974 talk from uh, former LDS President Spencer Kimball, titled, What is True Repentance? I'll just quote part of this. Uh, President Kimball, certainly we must realize that penalties for sin are not a sadistic desire on the part of the Lord, and that is why when people get deep in immorality other comparable sins, there must be action by courts and proper jurisdiction. Many people cannot repent until they have suffered much. They cannot direct their thoughts into new clean channels. They cannot control their acts. They cannot plan their future properly until they have lost values that they did not seem to fully appreciate. Therefore, the Lord has prescribed excommunication, disfellowshipment, or probation, and this is in line with the statement, uh, Alma's statement, that there could be no repentance without suffering. And it goes on to talk about uh, uh, essentially uh, suffering through, uh, you know, uh, my words here, uh, shaming or or excommunication. Um, and uh, and then they they go on to say this that uh, this constitutes a degree of embarrassment and deprivation and punishment in fact the principal punishment the church can deal is deprivation from privileges uh so professor barlow um the the the, the listener i think essentially wants to know uh, when and why the lds church this is their characterization went from excommunication as punishment to excommunication as as loving do over and i guess they're uh, sort of the um, behind their question is they, they suspect this is still excommunication as punishment. Yeah. Well, the word punishment, like all the words we're talking about, can have a range of uh, connotations. So within the tradition of the LDS Church, um, punishment from the Lord uh, has been conceived at very times, various times, even biblically. Uh, it comes across in various um, passages of the Hebrew Bible as um, I, the Lord, am angry, and I'm going to zap these people uh, for this kind of um, behavior, and that sounds vindictive. So the human understanding of God's motives and action uh, ranges not just in the LDS Church, but across um, he uh, Hebrew and Christian history, or any of a number of other religions, variously punishment uh, doesn't have to assume that uh, negative, vindictive quality, but it does, and the etymology of the word has led us to a place where it sounds harsh, and indeed can be harsh. Um, but um, President Kimball's point in the context of his book, The Miracle of Forgiveness, that the reader or the emailer um, alludes to is pointing out that privileges um, must be taken away for a person to repent, that is to come to terms with what's wrong and actually change. And so the taking away of privileges can be something like um, an excommunicated member is no longer allowed to pay tithing. So in one way that hurts the church who doesn't have use of these additional funds, but paying tithing is considered a a privilege, and you no longer have that privilege if you want to call that a punishment or a consequence of being excommunicated. Um, on the other hand, uh, if I'm a father and I have a child who's uh, doing something dangerous to themselves or harmful to others or even criminal, um, 
I'm, I may have to take measures that can be construed as punishment or restrictions, but I, uh, if I'm a good parent, I'm not doing that vindictively or because I uh, take a sadistic pleasure in hurting my child or taking away from them something that they want, but for their own good or the protection of other members of the community or the family, I may have to impose a punishment or some ground rules or limitations. So there's no clear answer to um, the writer's question. It's an evolving um, practice, and the term certainly evolved. The Church um, changed in recent decades uh, from terms like um, courts, disciplinary courts, to disciplinary councils, and so they're trying to signal to church members that these are meant to be beneficial and loving um, procedures, but they uh, um, communicating and even enacting discipline. They're not meant to be punitive in the harsh sense of that term. And so the language has evolved, but the general principle has a long duration. We turn to uh, Professor Craybill next. Uh, the, the, the similar, uh, I'll use the uh, the writer's uh, phrases here, which I think are good. Is that among the Amish and Mennonites would would it be considered um, excommunication as punishment or excommunication as loving do over? It would be much more uh, as loving do over. Um, I, I must say uh, how it's enacted all varies, uh, you know, from congregation to congregation and personality to personality, depending who the bishop is and so on. But uh, the Amish sometimes talk about it as tough love, and they refer frequently to parental responsibility that uh, with a child, a parent um, is responsible to discipline the child if the child strays and uh, exhibits uh, unaccepted behavior. Um, and they also, when they cite the Dordrecht Confession of 1632, it's very clear there in the language that confession says, we don't treat people like this as enemies, but rather we express love in the hope that they will come and be reunited again with the church. So um, theologically, in terms of the basic principle, it's very much um, a loving do-over, but Again, it can feel harsh to the person that's a recipient of the discipline or may be um, uh, administered in a harsh way, depending on the particular bishop or the congregation. We turn to Harrison Kleiner. So from the Catholic uh, point of view, what, where would the, the Catholic Church come down on that question? Yeah, I, I think we've found something of a common thread here. Uh, um, the Catholic Church um, considers excommunication a, a quote-unquote medicinal penalty. So it is a punishment, um, um, and I suspect um, – I mean it's, it's, it's not a punishment in the Catholic Church that is, that is delivered very often. But when it is delivered, I suspect that those who receive it might interpret it as a harsh punishment and penalty. Um, but the church's own self-understanding of it is, is medicinal. Um, um, the intention of inviting the person into repentance and a return to the full communion, full communion with the community of faith. Um, so, I mean, I, I think in, in that sense, uh, Dr. Barlow and Dr. Crable um, have expressed, I mean, I, I think there's a real common thread here. Uh, whether it's always received that way is is, is another question. Mm. Yeah, that, certainly so. If you talk to some of the excommunicants, 
they would tell you they receive it much differently yeah. than that. Yeah. Uh, if you're just uh, joining us, we're talking about uh, excommunication, uh, shunning, ostracizing, these practices that are well-known in religious circles, perhaps less well-known or, or uh, received differently in secular circles. Um, and we're, we're trying to understand this a little better in the wake of recent uh, high-profile excommunications of uh, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, you're welcome to join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495. You can email us to upraxis at gmail.com, and we're on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. Um, let's uh, turn to the next question. I'll start with uh, Harrison Kleiner on this one. Uh, this is a difficult balancing act, I would assume, uh, from the point of view of an institution. Uh, the goals are to to uh, preserve the integrity of the, the beliefs and doctrines of that institution as the leaders see it. But uh, how do you decide, or how should that be decided, who you excommunicate and who you don't? One high-profile example that, that you brought up to me is uh, the House Minority Leader, Nancy Pelosi. His views on abortion are well-known. Uh, she's a, a, a Catholic, and, and her views are at odds with the, with the Church. Yeah, so uh, the Catholic Church um, de- uses excommunication relatively rarely. I was curious, as a way, by way of comparison— um, the best numbers I could find in the LDS Church were about ten to twenty thousand um, of the claimed five, fifteen million members a year excommunicated. In the Catholic Church, point one percent, which doesn't sound like very much, but if if point one percent of Catholics were excommunicated each year, that'd be more than a million people a year, um, and it's not deployed anywhere near that often. It's typically deployed, or some kind of disciplinary action is deployed, in instances of, instances of what Catholics call scandal. And scandal in the theological sense is a stumbling block. So someone is committing scandal when their attitudes or behaviors or publicly expressed opinions um, lead other people to evil. Um, But uh, public figures, there's lots of publicly Catholic figures who are public figures, Nancy Pelosi, Joseph Biden, um, almost all of the Kennedys, um, who, who publicly as as legislators um, advance uh, positions that are obviously contrary to Catholic teaching. Um, The church has shown, it seems to me, uh, has given these people a fairly long leash. Um, Nancy Pelosi has not been excommunicated. Um, Cardinal Burke a few years ago suggested that she should um, not be given communion, uh, the Eucharist, but that was, he said, a decision for the bishop. there are sort of public corrections uh, that fall short of excommunication. So, for example, um, Bishop Tobin of Providence in 2009 got into a sort of public um, um, dialogue with then-representative Patrick Kennedy, um, expressing publicly that Patrick Kennedy's support of abortion, while also being a publicly confessed Catholic, that these two views were incompatible and encouraging him to refrain from taking the Eucharist, though not excommunicating him and and preventing him from taking it. Um, Another example, Nancy Pelosi a couple years ago met with Pope Benedict. Afterwards, she set out – gave a statement that they shared lots of common ground on service to the poor and others. Rather unusually, the Catholic gave its own statement saying that the Holy Father had used the occasion to remind her about her obligations to uphold the dignity of the human person at all stages of human life. A, a not so you couldn't misunderstand that statement, right? So, um, 
there are, I'm guessing, uh, many Catholics who wish that excommunication was exercised more often, that public figures like Nancy Pelosi and others are committing scandal in this sense, right, leading other Catholics to believe that it's you could be Catholic while also believing these other things. Uh, but typically the Catholic Church, the contemporary Catholic Church has, has um, um, refrained from excommunication and instead um, made public professions and I'm sure behind closed doors – done some sort of spiritual counseling and mentoring to try to uh, get these people to come to repentance. Hmm. Dr. Crable, I wonder what, what what is the usual cause for excommunication among the Amish and Mennonite? Is it uh, behaviors that, that, the, that the church leaders would see as unacceptable, or is it disagreements over you know, over the direction of, uh, of the church, as, as happens in the cases we've been, uh, we've been talking uh, about with, with Harrison Kleiner here? I would say it's much more focused on behaviors, but um, many church leaders would say it's not really about behaviors. It's about attitude and the willingness of the deviant to express remorse and uh, repentance. So let's say, um, uh, to leave uh, the uh, example of a car alone, but let's say a computer, let's say... um, Amish person uh, has a television in their home or a computer in their home, which would be forbidden by the church. And so the church leaders would have a conversation with a person and they'd have some discussion back and forth. And the person would pretty much just be belligerent and say, you know, uh, I'm so tired of the dumb things that the church does, and I'm just going to keep my television or keep my computer. That would the church leaders would say, well, the person is kind of excommunicating themselves. In other words, they're expressing a belligerent behavior that sort of automatically leads, and they know this, they know it would lead to their excommunication. On the other hand, if the person says, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very uh, sorry about that, you know, I, I, I beg your forgiveness, and so on, um, then the person would not be excommunicated. Um, so I think it becomes really an attitudinal thing many times, which is triggered by some type of behavior. It's typically not over doctrinal issues. They, uh, the Amish church really focuses on practice. It's like a discipleship church that focuses on the question of how are you practicing your faith daily in life uh, rather than on uh, doctrinal issues. I'd like to add a, a maybe sort of a sociological footnote here, Tom, um, in a broader context. I think the reason that uh, excommunication and shunning feels so uncomfortable to us, particularly at this stage in modern life, is because of the rise of individualism in the 20th century. And now even um, evolving into the selfie generation, it's kind of like we don't want anybody telling us what we should do. We don't want anybody placing restrictions on us. We want individual freedom to demonstrate our personal preferences however we want to, regardless of what any church body thinks. So I think uh, the rise of individualism has, uh, in a sense, confronted um, traditional practices of, of excommunication and shunning. Now, that's somewhat ironic because also in the modern world, we signed legal contracts when we perhaps take a job that we won't um, share information from that job or whatever. I mean, there's a lot of very uh, rigid uh, legal relationships we have in public life, in administrative and bureaucratic life that uh, certainly uh, set boundaries on our behavior. I wonder, Dr. Crable, a follow-up. 
um, uh, that what you just said resonates with me, but I, I was also thinking of another uh, strain of uh, a trend, which is a trend toward um, uh, people who say, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. I wonder how that would, would yeah, fit well, in. I, in I would say that fits right into what I've said. I, I think that phrase speaks of individualism. It's like the ultimate moral authority is in the individual. It's kind of like how I feel. If I feel spiritual, then that's the authority. It, I don't need to refer to the Bible. I don't need to refer to a church denomination or the dogma of a church. And I, I would view, uh, from a sociological perspective, that whole focus on spirituality and personal spirituality is basically one aspect of the bigger issue of the rise of individualism in the 20th century. Hmm. Uh, yes, sir. The Catholic Church, John Paul II once expressed um, this, I mean, this sort of negotiation. I think Dr. Crable's raised a very important and interesting point here with individualism. Um, John Paul II once put church teachings this way, this way. He said, the church imposes nothing. She only proposes. And, it's, and, and, and so the, the propositions, the claims, the dogmas of the church are, are seen as invitations to a deeper relationship with God. Um, most Catholics are in the process of that, right? I mean, most Catholics um, um, question, wonder about, have a hard time believing this or that church teaching at a different time of their lives. And in that sense, all Catholics are constantly in the process of repentance and conversion um, um, and, you know, coming back into full communion with the church. That's why there's a sacrament of confession and reconciliation that's recommended as a as an ordinary and regular part of, of a Catholic's spiritual life. Excommunication um, it, it tends to be reserved not for, and this maybe is a difference with the Mennonite tradition, not for this or that individual with this or that behavior. It tends to be public professions of attitudes um, that then cause scandal, right? Make it look like, oh, you can be Catholic and also believe this. Even then, it's usually excommunications not used, rather as these other kind of public disciplinary measures. Um, but I do think that is perhaps a difference of how to negotiate the individualism and then to what extent do you shun individuals uh, who might participate in the Catholic world might use contraception, right, which is plainly in violation of authoritative church moral teachings. Um, but none of those people are excommunicated, right? The, if they have an active priest, they are, they are likely in the confessional called to repentance. Um, but there's a delicate negotiation between um, churches that want to have an uh, – uh, that have a communal identity and then this sort of impulse of individualism, and I decide for myself what I think. Let me turn to uh, before we take a break. I want to uh, get on this question to Dr. Barlow. Uh, it's a it's a thorny issue, isn't it, for an institution like, uh, say, the Mormon Church? Who do you excommunicate? Who do you not? Who do you act against? Who do you not? Um, and and uh, Dr. Kleiner just articulated something I think is is would sort of the conventional wisdom. The line seems to be if you're if you're very public with with the view that's with too much in in opposition to the church, then that's that's where the problem comes. Is is that how you see it? Um, that's absolutely crucial in the Mormon context. I think this thread that you're on with um, Professor Kleiner and Craybill um, is is very important for religion as a whole for the trajectory of. Um, 
the world history and certainly American history towards individualism. It's possible. I myself have argued in print that it's possible to understand Joseph Smith's um, whole project, his entire enterprise was um, pointed towards the mending of fractures, the attempt to unify that which was, especially in the new American Republic, um, fracturing and heading towards um, an individualism that gone crazy, individualism on steroids that um, almost atomizes society. So in a Mormon context, salvation and ultimate salvation, which in Mormon parlance is called exaltation, is not an individual enterprise. You're not saved as an individual, but religion, religio, that um, that Latin root is like a ligament binding together. That's what religion means. So I'm spiritual, not religious, is almost a contradiction in what all that is thrusting towards. So salvation is a relational thing, and we only can make sense out of the concept and practice of excommunication in that context. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, You asked earlier about, um, is it within the Amish or Catholicism or Mormonism, um, more behavior than doctrine? It's much uh, radically more behavior than doctrine in these cases uh, within Mormonism. Um, Adultery, uh, Mormonism takes sexual morality within uh, marriage um, extremely seriously, so adultery is a common cause or seriously criminal acts of abuse or embezzlement or things like that might lend themselves to disciplinary councils. And uh, to answer your most recent question, yes, the public nature um, of the event, what public like Candace do the church harm or church members harm by spreading by contagion. So it's possible even for um, an ordinary member to um, do some act or commit a crime, and depending on the circumstances, they may be called in and disciplined in some way or some privileges taken, but they wouldn't be necessarily excommunicated. But if that person were the mayor of the city or a state president or a bishop, then that would, as uh, Harrison points out, that um, would cause scandal and uh, some collateral damage. So they might be more likely to be excommunicated. And if I could have one final thought here uh, that I was going to mention earlier, but neglected to, and that is the very term excommunication or shunning um, really needs some examination. Excommunication sounds like to the public ear, I think, in our era, that we're not going to talk to you anymore. We're going to be out of communication. And and, um, some some, um, groups like fundamentalist um, groups that are not members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but most famously because of recent publicity, a group like Warren Jeff's group down in Colorado City and Hilldale, um, they don't use the word shunning, and they 
do use the word excommunicate, but they um, might mean by that that you literally are not to talk um, to this offending person. And um, if you do, you yourself uh, are in danger of hellfire or in danger of excommunication. So it can go to extreme forms um, in a group like that. But excommunication uh, theologically within the church and within Christian history tends to be not you're out of communication with us as we understand the term, but you're out of communion with us, taking those sacramental covenants of joined behaviors and commitments, and that you're no no longer um, subject to those privileges. But um, in a Mormon context, um, all the urgings of the church leaders would be, um, I think as Professor Crable pointed out, within an Amish um, context, would be to treat um, these people with love and respect, but but they're um, wanting these privileges now. Let's take another break. When we come back, uh, we'll continue the, the, on that, that ex, the exact same thread there, uh, uh, Professor Barlett's good segue uh, to an email that we've received from Claudia and Logan. We'll do that uh, first after the break. Did you know that you can open a savings account for your children as soon as you have their social security numbers? Start saving for their education today. Did You Know That is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and USU's Partners in Business Intellectual Property Workshop, discussing the growing importance of IP in business. Thursday, April 9th at the Granite Education Center, USU Salt Lake City Campus. Details at partners.usu.edu. It's music inspired by Deep Darkness, a piece called Tenebrae by Argentine composer Osvaldo Golihoff. Tenebre means darkness, illuminated by candlelight. And these were services, religious services performed in Holy Week and in darkness. Tenebrae by Osvaldo Golehoff on the next Performance Today from APM. Thursday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. The recent excommunications of prominent members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints got us wondering about the practice of excommunication, the meaning in people's minds of this and related practices like shunning and ostracizing. So we're talking about it on the program today with a USU professor of religious studies and history, Philip Barlow, USU lecturer of philosophy, Harrison Kleiner, and Donald Crabill, who's a professor of uh, sociology and religious, religious studies at Elizabethtown College. And we're talking about this in the context of Mormonism, Catholicism, and Amish and Mennonite cultures. We've also talked about uh, the secular manifestations of, of this. Uh, professor Kleiner brought up the uh, the current shaming of Indiana, which is uh, perhaps bearing fruit for the people who want some action there. There's there's another bill apparently moving through the, the uh, state legislature. Uh, we want to know what you think. And the number is 1-800-826-1495. You can join us at e- upraxis at gmail.com. And uh, we are on Twitter. You can join us there at Utah Public Radio. Uh, so let me go to this uh, email from Claudia. She's talking exactly about what Professor Barlow was talking about before the break. 
so here's what she says. I remember watching a Phil Donahue segment years ago with Sonia Johnson, who was excommunicated from the LDS Church for her support of the Equal Rights Amendment. I was struck at the time by the sharp contrast of LDS excommunication definition and Donahue's Catholic understanding of it. They were using the same word, not realizing their different definition. Having been trained in Catholic practice and then LDS, I could see the problem that Phil and Sonia did not. Phil saw Sonia's excommunication as extreme beyond belief, whereas many LDS see excommunication as a release from covenant so the former member can begin their road back to full fellowship. Uh, Claudia goes on to say, I'm really glad people are having this discussion today because these differences need to be understood. I appreciate Professor Kleiner's explanation of the weight and rarity of excommunication in the Catholic Church today. I later found out during doing my family history that at least one of my ancestors had been excommunicated from the Catholic Church back in the 13th century for withholding revenues from Rome that the Church felt was due them. So the practice has evolved. It is plain. Uh, so, Professor Kleiner, first, what uh, would you say to, to Claudia? Yeah, I do think that, um, I mean, part of what she raises in, in the more contemporary setting rather than the sort of historical um, setting, I mean, certainly excommunication as a practice has developed in the Catholic Church, um, much of it in large part because in the in, in the Middle Ages, oftentimes the church was the state and the state was the church. And so uh, crimes against the church were also perceived to be crimes against the state and hence um, um, excommunicants were not simply threats to – it wasn't just theological scandal, scandal, it's also political scandal or state scandal. But in the contemporary setting, I think she's right. Um, I would find it – I cannot imagine that somebody like John DeLynn, had he been Catholic and had a thing like Catholic stories or you know, instead of his podcast Mormon stories, that he would have been excommunicated. Um, the, um, it's really – I've, I've never heard of any – I mean I don't know of any lay people. Um, the call, uh, a group of, of people and members of a group called Call to Action were excommunicated I think back in 2006 by the Bishop of Lincoln, Nebraska. Um, but this is exceptionally rare. And so um, it, it raises, I suppose, the question that why does one – when do you decide to excommunicate somebody? And and um, it does seem to me for reasons that I don't understand because I'm not an expert on LDS issues, um, that the LDS church felt the need to make a regulatory discipline um, in the cases of Kate Kelly and John DeLynn when – that would be almost unthinkable from a Catholic perspective that that a, a lay person – I mean even even non-lay people. So for instance, back in 2009, a woman religious, a nun at Creighton University published a book on sexual ethics and she wasn't excommunicated or even especially disciplined. But her book was declared out of step. The U.S. Catholic Conference of Bishops said this book does not express a Catholic understanding of of sexuality. Um, which is a kind of a discipline, I suppose, but falls well short of some kind of uh, reduction of privileges or rights of membership or things like this. Professor Barlow, uh, does this resonate with you, Claudia's experience of watching this? Uh, as, as she saw it, a, a difference in understanding the meaning of excommunication between Phil Donahue and, and Sonia Johnson. Yeah, and at some I'm not sure where Harrison uh, is getting the numbers he alluded to when he spoke of the uh, frequency in the LDS Church uh, of so many thousands per year. 
um, those would need to be examined carefully since there's no published um, accessibility of such records. But um, it is doubtless true that it's far more frequent practice uh, in Mormonism than in Catholicism, and that alone, let alone its application, kind of implies uh, some difference in meaning. So I think uh, Claudia makes a good point. She alludes to uh, Sonia Johnson, a very uh, famous case, a woman who, um, after being excommunicated, later ran for the National Organization of Women and um, was um, was too obstreperous and extreme even for that organization, which I only bring up to suggest in in Mormonism, with a recent case of Kate Kelly or John DeLeon, and John lives here in Logan as a friend, as a great guy, but from the church's perspective, where he crossed the line is not in having opinions or facilitating um, exploration of of important issues of history or policy, but in uh, changing the de facto character of that enterprise from one of um, exploration and providing voices to one that amounted to a campaign um, against the purposes and policies of the church, and that would have been the case with Sonia Johnson as well. So a crucial difference. It's explicitly um, church policy that one can have opinions that are different um, than the church. If one is a congressman and has to vote her conscience against the official policy of the church, then her mandate is to do that. But when you go about, as Sonia Johnson did, uh, campaigning publicly and drawing others to your cause at cross purposes with the church, then in the church's view, that's when you've crossed the line. We just have a couple of minutes left. We'll turn to uh, uh, Dr. Graybill uh, for the for the last word. This is interesting. Claudia brings up an interesting point. There there are different understandings of this word excommunication. I suppose shunning as well. Are there? misunderstandings of these practices uh, from the point of view of the leaders of uh, Amish and Mennonite? Well, I, again, I think it, there's a variety, a wide variety of interpretations, and I think from um, the Amish-Mennonite perspective, the focus is on uh, the breaking of uh, the sacrament. I mean, you're out of communion, uh, so to speak, more than that we won't talk with you. I mean, it's not... Um, uh, a kind of exile or isolation where there's no social interaction, but it's more that um, you violated your baptismal vow, and so consequently, you, in a sense, you've taken yourself out of communion with us in terms of uh, when we express uh, what the Amish would call uh, communion, uh, not using the word sacrament, but the gathering of the community to worship together and make uh, decisions together, which is sort of uh, the Anabaptist idea of the Holy Communion. We will uh, leave the discussion there. We're out of time. Much more could be said, and the discussion uh, can continue on our website, upr.org, where you can find this uh, conversation again. Our thanks to uh, Philip Barlow, USU Professor of Religious Studies and History. Thanks so much. Thanks to all three of you. And uh, thanks to Harrison Kleiner. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Uh, USU Lecturer of Philosophy. And Donald Crable is Distinguished College Professor at uh, Elizabethtown College. Thanks. You're very welcome. And thanks for listening to Access Utah.
The Fusion Theater Project at Utah State University and Utah Public Radio present Playing Shortly, short plays on the radio. The first episode airs Friday night at 8.30. This project features new works by American playwrights performed on stage in front of a live audience and broadcast over the radio. This week's program features a play by Sidney Fulmer titled Super. It's about a young boy who calls himself Super Sam, who feels compelled to protect his older sister from the clutches of the dreaded white knight. Casey tries to remove the felt mask from Sam's face. Sammy recoils and backs away from her. What are you doing? You know we can't reveal our secret identities for all the world to see. The White Knight could find all of our loved ones and destroy us all. Seriously, Sam? Super Sam! Okay. We invite you to gather around your radio Friday night at 8.30. We're playing shortly. Short plays on the radio. Congratulations to Deborah K. Snyder, Assistant Professor of Arts at Southern Utah University, for her award granted by the National Art Education Association. Snyder is the recipient of the Pacific Region Higher Education Art Educator Reward. UPR would like to congratulate Deborah K. Snyder on her award of Pacific Region Higher Education Art Educator Reward. On the next humankind... Sometimes it takes me, you know, an hour for me to relax all the buzz that's going on in my brain because I've been so materially focused to be able to relax and let go of that so some part of me can listen to more subtle levels. Some ideas for ways to recharge from best-selling author David Allen. I'm David Freudberg. Join us for Humankind. Thursday night at 8.30 on Utah Public Radio. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. And thank you for listening to Access Utah today on Utah Public Radio, a service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. Time now is 10 o'clock. Stay tuned for the Zesty Garden coming up next, followed by performance today at 11 and exploring music later this afternoon at 1.